What's up, guys? You are listening to the YBR Remo Show, where we talk all things Vancouver real estate and mortgages, take boring topics, and make them interesting. Make sure to stay tuned to listen to everything you need to know how to put cash back in your pocket, create wealth in real estate, and simplify the complicated. We're going to talk today about the 15 most common myths that we're seeing in real estate. And I think this is, uh, I know we agree uh, mutually that this is uh, very topical right now. We're getting a lot of people reaching out because we're entering spring. And this is, these are things that we hear all year round. And whether it's in the industry, out of the industry, real estate agents, clients, accountants, everybody, we hear these different uh, myths from people all throughout the space. So we're going to do rapid fire today, something a little different, a little unique, because we got 15 different things. So we're going to spend one to one and a half minutes on each of these items, and then maybe we'll flush them out depending on what people say later. So uh, let's dig right into it. What do you say? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Number one, most common thing. I can't buy with less than 20% down. How many times did you hear that this week? Maybe five. Five times. Which five is quite times. a bit. Yes. Yeah, it's very common. Um, most people think you you have to put at least twenty percent down if it's if they're buying for the second time. They think it's like a first time buyer incentive to be able to put less than twenty uh, percent down, but it's false. Totally. Uh, this week on my own as well, heard uh, uh, you can't buy with less than twenty percent down in multiple different situations, circumstances. Uh, but in more importantly, uh, many of these situations they were first time buyers. So guys, this is false. You can, in fact, buy with less than 20% down, even if you're not a first-time buyer, even if it's your primary, uh, and many other situations. So so the two situations where you have to have 20% down is if you're buying a property for a million dollars or over, if that's the purchase price or value, or if you're buying an investment property. Yeah, and to be uh, just to jump on that really quickly, buying it to be an investment day one, like you're not yeah, exactly. moving into it, you're not going to fix it up, nothing like that. You're using rental income. That's yeah, we, we need like a shot clock. So this boom. boom. All right, yeah, number two, good. number two, uh, must be a uh, same thing. Must be a first time buyer. Well, actually, we already talked about that. So we hit number one, number two. Number two was you must be a first time buyer to buy with less than twenty percent down, or a second home. So we didn't talk about the second home idea. So you can actually buy a second property or a second home with less than 20% down as long as you qualify, right? Yeah, yeah. within reason, like the second home needs to be a, a vacation home. So if you're buying two homes in Surrey, it's probably not gonna be work out because it's not like you would be vacationing in the same municipality that you live in. Yeah. So there is some restrictions there, but. Or if you're renting out your primary residence, the one that you're living in right now, right. and then moving to that home, that's right. also, yes. that's probably the more common one yeah. that we would see. That's our next question. All right, here we go. <laughs> Derek, number three, go ahead. My goodness. So you can't have two properties with less than 20% down. So just like Alex said, if you've bought your existing property with 5% down and you want to move on and buy another one, as long as you're going to rent your existing property out, typically, uh, you can buy your next property with as little as 5% down, um, just like you said. Absolutely. Using the rental income to help you qualify. Nice yeah. and quick as you're motoring through this. Number four, this is one I think we'll spend a little bit more time on. You have to have two years of tax filings to qualify for a mortgage if you are self-employed or contracted or anything like that. Let's round table this one. Yeah, false. There are options where you could be, you don't have to have any sort of filings as a business for self. So we've, we've helped people that have only been in business for six months with an alternative lender. Right. So right. just on that, it's not always alternative lenders. Here's a very quick example. A guy's in the software industry, software tech, uh, security software, actually. And he's been an employee for nine years, making X amount of dollars a year. And he just became a contractor. So he runs the income through his corporation. And he's been doing that for five months. And we got him a mortgage with 5% down. 
And the reason we were able to do that is because of the reasonability behind that. He's still with the same company. His contract is for the same amount of money. He just has better options when it comes to tax filing, right? So Absolutely. it's not always alternative financing. It's just really case by case. Yeah, I think we see that a lot as well in like the medical health profession, physiotherapists, yeah. kinesiologists, this sort of thing where they go from an hourly rate, that sort of thing, and then eventually transition to a fee per client. So um, case by case, always just reasonability. Yes, you can qu get qualified with less than two years. Um, so yeah, lots of, lots of options. Anything else to add to that one? Yeah. I think sometimes people are uh, registered as a sole proprietor and then incorporate to being an, uh, their own company. Similar thing. As long as it's the same industry, we can usually get around that. Truth. All right. Number five, you cannot, uh, get a mortgage on bare land. I've actually heard that this week. So, um, that, that the client was uh, saying, well, I know I can't get a mortgage on this uh, piece of land. Uh, feedback on that guys you definitely can get a mortgage um, the qualification is the exact same as buying a property um, obviously you have to factor in that you're probably not going to live on the dirt so we have to factor in your rent payment or your other property uh, if it's unserviced land so there's actually no sewer water anything ran to the property typically need 50 percent down now, if you're buying the land to build a house as well, and you're doing it all at once, you can get away with as little as 25% down on the land. It just depends on the situation. Yeah, servicing, if the lot isn't serviced, but you are buying it to build a, a home, then you can still get away with less down because servicing is part of your construction Let's explain budget. servicing really quickly for all those who don't know. Yeah, so water, power, sewer, just everything you would need to build a house and get rid yeah. of the waste and get Perfect. the water that you need. So yeah. there are options. Love it. Yeah. Number six, uh, which we're actually going to touch on in a little bit more detail about something unique that we do. A deposit is the same thing as a down payment. So there's kind of a few different ways to look at that. Um, so first and foremost, a deposit is not the same as a down payment. A deposit is what you basically place once you have a seller who's accepted an offer on your property and you've decided to move forward. So you've removed your financing conditions, your appraisal conditions, your inspection conditions. That deposit forms a portion of the down payment in the end. A lot of people have different concerns or questions and thoughts that the deposit is completely the down payment or it's going somewhere else or things of that nature. They're going to have to pay down payment on top of the deposit. Not the case uh, at all. Any thoughts or questions you want to add to that? A lot of people wonder how it works and like, why are you giving a part of your down payment up front? So obviously when you go through a purchase process, you remove your subjects, you're giving a, a portion of your down payment typically which gets held in a real estate trust account, which then gets wired to your lawyer. So what basically happens is you give your deposit, which is a partial down payment. And then when you go to meet your lawyer, usually a few days before completion, you're going to bring the remainder of your down payment in the form of a bank draft. And then your lawyer is going to have your entire down payment in their account. They use that plus the mortgage money to essentially buy the property. Excellent. You, yeah, absolutely. Behalf. Really quick thing we should plug in there is that uh, what commonly happens when someone is selling a home and buying a home is they need to come up with this deposit, which we've uh, found a solution for. So we should throw that out there. We do uh, have a solution for those clients in the form of what's called a deposit loan, which is not normally readily available at a bank. It basically lends you the money against the equity of your property. So you don't have to refinance or do something really expensive mm -hmm. in order to do that. So let's move on. Uh, number seven, you can walk away from a purchase or a presale if you cannot buy a property without reper repercussions. I think this is actually really big, especially in, it was big in 2019, actually funny enough, uh, or not funny at all, but uh, thoughts on that guys? 
Well, you most certainly can. You can do whatever you want. You can walk away with it. But I mean, there's, but there will be repercussions. For sure. No so doubt. like the biggest thing is when you, like we just talked about the deposit, if you walk away, it's very likely you're going to lose that deposit. You'd have to go to court and fight for it, which that's up in the air. But typically you're walking away from your deposit, right? And that can range from fifteen to $100,000, depending on the size of the property uh, or the value, I should say. Uh, and then the other side is the legal aspect, right? So imagine if you were in the seller's shoes and you sold your property for say 500,000, right? Now, six months later when it's closing, maybe the, if the market had dropped, it goes down to 475. Well, if the buyers walk away and you're trying to resell your property, you've essentially just lost $25,000, right? So the sellers can, and sometimes would actually enforce that legally to get that money back from you. So there's potential for There's all sorts of claims, like how much, yeah. how long they were carrying financing for. For sure. There's so, there's a lot. It's if they lost out on the future home yeah, as well. It's, it's not ideal. It's, if you're going to purchase a home, have full intention of closing that on so, that purchase. Yeah, a lot of people go in and buy pre-sales and they give a deposit, not worrying about the financing because it's going to be ready in two years or three years and they'll figure it out. But it doesn't always work, so it's best to get a pre-approval, figure out your situation now, uh, and at least if you don't qualify now, you can try to build a plan to make it work. Absolutely. Uh, I just actually had a uh, story of that happening uh, just in the last week where a client was uh, intending to walk away from a pre-sale with a property depreciated in value so much, and the developer said, we are flat out going to sue you if you do do that because the property value had decreased uh, according to the appraised value of the property uh and so this client was looking for options finally so for it sure. definitely can happen very important um so getting into a totally different topic right here uh very 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 common this is one that we've been hearing since i've been hearing this since i started my career is that you must be past probation to get a mortgage and I'm going to talk to that really quickly. Uh, there's a lot of variables here. I mean, how long is your probation? Do you have a co-signer? What type of um, uh, property are you buying? What's your experience? Do you have credit? What's your down payment? Basically, short and sweet, the answer is you do not have to be past probation. In fact, we've gotten mortgages for, for people um, who haven't even started their jobs before, although that's not very common. Um, probation is not something that needs to be complete. I hear people waiting three months, six months, mm -hmm. this sort of thing. If there's a reasonable story, like let's say if you're, for example, you're taking a career, uh, uh like a, a raise, for example, and going a little bit of a jump up in your career, similar line of work. And you're, you know, one month or two months into your job and you're on a three month probation. A lot of lenders will still consider your application. Am I right? Absolutely. But then there's the flip side. If, if you're a plumber and you're becoming a car salesman, there's a lot of risk there, right? So they're probably going to want to wait and make sure you're actually going to jive with that new employment. I've actually had situations where people have probation and the lender didn't like it. And just taking a discussion and basically explaining to our client what they needed to present to their employer, they waived the probation to yeah. make it work for the client. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of ways to get around it. Like, especially nurses. I find nurses never get their um, guaranteed full-time it's almost like they're on probation forever uh, but there's history there and we can we can look at a two-year average and, and get around that I think the key to that one right there is uh, full, full disclosure is talk to us about it in those situations because uh, we know enough lenders in situations that we can advise accordingly on that so you do not need to be past the probation number nine uh, pulling credit, uh, this is again an interesting paradox. Pulling credit drastically impacts your credit. It's really interesting. 
to hear most of people ask this question are the ones that probably don't need to ask this question. Mm-hmm. For anybody out there, just a quick little history lesson for or, or uh, educational lesson on credit. Credit scores start at 300. They go up to 900. I'd say the average we see is high sixes, low sevens. And that's usually enough to get qualified for a good lending option conventionally. And usually what I find is people who ask this question have a credit score of eight to 900, which, which is exceptional. Um, Let's just speak to that really frankly with regards to to credit pulls and and the concern there. So pulling credit won't drastically uh, affect your credit negatively. Now I've seen people that have quite literally gone from car dealership to car dealership and they've been to 10 car dealerships trying to get financing. And when that situation happens in in say a 30 day span, that is going to negatively affect your credit. If you have someone pull your credit, let's say your bank pulls your credit today and it doesn't work out and you come to us three weeks later and we pull it once, there's absolutely zero effect. But what you will also notice is, is the more established your credit is, if you've had loans and credit cards and maybe other mortgages for two, three, five years, it won't affect your credit at all. If you have had zero credit, and you go and maybe have your credit pulled two or three times, you will see a bit of a decrease. It's very case by case, but the, the thicker and the stronger your credit is, the less it'll affect it. Yeah, I think the key is, is is pulling it so many times in a short period of time, like to your point, walking into multiple car dealerships in a day and pulling your credit, you know, as many yeah. as six, seven times. It, it may not impact your credit score, but the creditor or like the lender looking to give you an approval will ask questions about that. What's going on? What did you get declined six, seven times in a row? Why, what's, yeah. what's happening, right? Yeah. That's actually another advantage uh, um, of working with us is when we're working with a client, we work again with multiple lenders, but we can do one credit pull and uh, that same credit report is delivered. It can be delivered to multiple lenders. Whereas if someone were to go from, let's say, uh, one bank to one credit union to another lender or a different broker, every other individual would have to pull it. Yeah, so that's point. when that's where there are concerns could be had. One or two in a year, you're probably okay. Um, but for us, really, we only are going to do it at pre-approval and then maybe at a live purchase stage. So yeah. uh, that's pretty much it. So uh, number 10, um, again, another big one. This is one that we see uh, quite literally every single day. Uh, the lowest rate is the most important thing or most important factor when choosing a mortgage. Yeah, I mean, everyone thinks the lowest rate is the cheapest solution overall, and it's incorrect. Yeah, I mean, jumping right into that again, I get asked that question on a daily basis. And what I would say is absolutely couldn't be more incorrect. Um, don't get me wrong. I think from uh, what, what people should understand from our end is that what we're trying to understand for our client situation is obviously a number of, a number of factors in terms of their long-term uh, goals. But what we're actually trying to understand is what is the lowest total cost, not the rate. The rate is like one of many factors. It's kind of like buying two different cars. And if you were to buy, let's say a Tesla and buy a truck, even though the truck might be a little bit less expensive than the Tesla, for example, What's going to be your total cost of ownership over the 10 years? Maybe not the best example, because I don't know what it's going to cost around a Tesla, but, but the gas, the oil, the maintenance of the engine, all this kind of stuff, maybe in the case of the Tesla, it'll save you a yeah. lot more money, even though it's more expensive up front. Yeah, and we try to figure out everyone's personal situation so that we can find them the best product. Because if, if you came to me and said that you're going to buy this property and you plan on renovating it and selling it in one year... If you walked into your bank and told them that, they probably might not recommend taking a variable. They'll probably tell you to take the five-year fix, which is going to be the cheapest rate. But taking that product and knowing that you're going to sell it in a year might trigger a massive penalty, right? So you really have to think about the the long-term plan and and 
what your situation is. We talk to some people that are moving into a new property, but they know they're moving in two years, right? They know they're moving to Kelowna for work. So just understanding the overall situation and trying to find the best product with obviously a very competitive rate. Yeah. And you may not always, you may all, a lot of people buy a home with the intention of never moving, but that's not realistic. So just have having a flexible product for in the, in the event that you do have to move to Kelowna or you do have to move for whatever reason in two, three years, having a, a product that's a little bit more flexible may cost you a little bit more in interest rate, but could save you thousands as more of an insurance policy in case you do have to make a move. I think the best way to explain it to people is that all products are not alike and yeah. you are quite, uh, quite honestly, usually getting what you pay for. Once, mm-hmm. once we get an idea of specifically what's important to you, then we'll pick the best rate of that type of solution. For right. Sure. Uh, number 11, uh, the more you put down, the better your interest rate is. Yeah. That couldn't be uh, more opposite, which is funny enough. I mean, if you're putting a 5% down payment on a property, you're actually going to get the best rate available in our country. Believe Crazy. it or not. Crazy. And then as soon as you hit 20%, which you think is, is a better situation, which it is overall, but you're going to see a slightly higher interest rate. Yeah. Comparatively, uh, 2.79 maybe goes up to 2.99 when you hit 20%. But the flip side to that is when you hit 20% down, there's no CMHC yeah. or, or mortgage insurance premium, which is massive. It ranges from roughly 2.5% up to 4%. Right. Yeah. And a lot of people don't understand what CMHC insurance is. It's actually insurance for the lender. It's default insurance in case you miss a mortgage payment. They're not out of pocket. CMHC is or Genworth is the insurer. So a lot of people don't understand that the insurance they're paying for is for the lender, not you, the borrower. And that's why you get lower interest rates. Now, there are some situations in renewals. Uh, so if you're coming up for renewal and you're looking for a new lender or product, if you're in the range of, say, 20 to to zero percent right so you're, you're not below 20 percent down if you're if you hit that 50 percent mark sometimes there are promotional rates that will get you slightly lower but that's typically only in a refinance renewal scenario yeah I, we didn't have this question on here but it, it plays into this piece because a lot of people will buy a house say five years ago with five percent down and now their mortgage is coming up for renewal and they're being offered very good interest rates at renewal because they still have a cmhc insured mortgage but now but they request to make one little change in you know taking out a little bit more money or extending their amortization you're now changing the mortgage and now you no longer have that cmhc insurance and boom just with a little change like that your interest rates are going up so that's something that plays into this piece where uh, that CMHC insurance, it, it's key. It, it will save you Again, a lot, yeah. a lot and a lot of variables. Talk to yeah. us. <laughs> totally. Totally. All right. Number 12, I have a lot of money uh, down. I can easily qualify for a mortgage. I uh, heard this one on, what day is it today? I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday. I heard this yeah. uh, from a client who, who basically uh, was retiring and uh, said, you know what? I'm putting down, in this case, 50% of the property value, but they were still looking for a mortgage of $500,000. Now, I had to break the news to him based on his situation that it was not the truth. He was actually still going to have to qualify based on his income for that $500,000 in this case. So the reality is, is although there are some equity options available to clients, generally the cost of such equity option, meaning you're not using your income to qualify, is substantially greater when compared to like, hey, I, I qualify based on how much money I make to take out that amount of money, right? Yeah, absolutely. Anything else to add to that, guys? No, I mean, it comes up a lot, but it's just, it's, uh, it, yeah. Yeah, it's mortgage a- qualification is like, 
drastically reliant on income. A lot of people come, and just to play off this piece, a lot of people come and say, okay, well, I have an 800 credit score. Should I not be getting a better rate? And I have a 20% down payment. Should I not be getting a better rate? Yeah. But those are quite literally just requirements of getting a mortgage now. It's, it's not a benefit. You have to have good credit, and you have to have a down payment. Yeah. And if you don't have the income, you're not getting a mortgage. Yeah, not, yeah. well, not, not what they're I'm, looking for, I should say. Yeah. Um, to summarize, if you do have lots of money down, you actually can easily get a mortgage. It's just not going to be with a bank. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think uh, to frame this on our conversation, a lot of what we're talking about is conventional qualification. We do have access to a lot of alternative and, and private lending options. Like a lot of our conversations today are more for people who are looking mm -hmm. for conventional bank related type of financing and so forth. There's a lot of other options out there, but, uh, on this note, as we we're almost there, like we've got three more big, big ones that, that, uh, we want to chat about here. But, uh, I think the big thing to note about all these 15 things is at one point, some of these things might have been true. Like at one point in oh, the last sure. 15, 20, 30, 40 years, that one thing would be true. But, you know, in the last year alone, we've already seen, I think, three or four different programs introduced and different guideline changes. And we get an email every single week with a new lender and a new product and things like that. So I think the key to all this is that these things are changing all the time. And that's why we still have a job. So <laughs> keep rolling. Yeah. Um, number uh, 13, a co-signer will help my application. That's a big one. Comes up every day. Okay. So we've pre-approved, say, you know, husband and wife buying, trying to buy their first home. It's not quite as much as they would have in, anticipated or wanted to buy the, you know, the, the home that they're, their dream home. So I'm going to add my mom and that should help. But that's not the case because as you all know, or as you know, we have to, we have to look at that applicant as a just, just like the other two. And we're now looking at all of their assets and their portfolio and all their debt. And that's now part of the entire file. So in sometimes uh, a co-signer can actually be a detriment to the, to the mortgage. Yeah. A lot of times what happens is people reference their parents, right? My parents are going to co-sign, but a lot of times parents are retired and their income is quite minimal. So the, the biggest piece, basically what you're looking for in a co-signer is they have to have enough income to service their own debts. So we have to factor in their own mortgages, their own car payments, their own credit cards. They have to have enough income to service their own debts plus additional income to help with yours. Cause if their income basically is just covering their own liabilities in a mortgage application, there's zero benefit to you. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of our situations. And a lot of people that I speak with, they say, well, my parents have a million dollar house with no mortgage, but their income is maybe $2,000 a month. Right. So they're not going to benefit you as drastically as you would think. Um, but it's always like, just like we've been saying, it's case by case. Totally. Number 14, do you pay for the services of a mortgage broker or real estate agent? Let's just talk about us first and foremost. Yeah. So as a mortgage broker, this is something that I feel like it's like the, uh, it's like the elephant in the room at the start of almost every conversation when, we, when we're introduced to someone who's never worked with a mortgage broker before, when we explain to them, Hey, actually what we do for you comes at no cost to you in almost all circumstances. If someone's qualifying for what we're talking about, a conventional loan, our, ins our actual cost is paid by the institution, a bank, a mortgage finance company, a credit union, and it's built into their total cost. And I think that's surprising for a lot of people. They think there's maybe a surplus to their rate, a surplus to the cost. But if we put it in perspective, if you're going to go walk into uh, the bank or another institution, they're going to have to pay an employee. They're going to have to go through that file. They're going to have to spend a lot of time and a lot of energy. And it's not going to be nearly as efficient if you're going to come from a single source that literally only sends in mortgages and they're already prepared in advance. So so uh, if that makes sense, yes, you do not pay anything to work with us. Now, let's throw in the asterisk. 
And when is that the case? When do you pay for a mortgage broker? Because people hear about a lot of fees and things of that nature. These are situations that can vary, but normally in these circumstances, we would see this when uh, we're working with an alternative type of lending source where they don't necessarily pay us or they don't pay our fee or cost. Or uh, if we're working with a private institution where there's a mix of a lender and a broker fee in those circumstances. Or, and this is another big one, in many other circumstances, we can actually negotiate terms for our client at an institution that doesn't normally pay a broker, but they couldn't get it on their own. And again, I think that the key point to put all about all this is there are never surprise fees coming from us. It's always something that's talked about far in advance. But in the vast majority of the clients that we work with, I, I don't know the numbers, but I'd say over 90%, there is no fee charged. And it's not something common for the average folk. For sure, 100%. Like I'd, yeah. yeah, I'd agree with the 90% ratio. And the, the other 10%, like you said, before we even make that move or go to that lender, we're presenting to our clients what this is going to look like, whether it's a higher rate and a fee, or maybe it's just a fee with a different type of bank. And if they're comfortable with that, we'll move forward. If you're not, then we draw the line there. Absolutely. And then on the real estate agent front, I think the key point to make is that if you are working with an agent uh, to buy a property of which we'd be happy to introduce you to someone if you're not sure what that looks like, they actually are paid by the selling party. So the selling party pays a commission, a portion that goes to the buying agent who's bringing in this case, the person that's representing you to the property and a portion pays for the, uh, the realtor to sell the property. So uh, you're not paying a fee out of pocket or any additional cost to, to work with a realtor or with us. So mm -hmm. very common questions. Just on that, like the services of a mortgage worker is so valuable. Like we always consider ourselves as like the lawyer to your, your financing journey. Um, there's so much value in that and you're yeah, like 90% of the time you're not paying for that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Number 15, Whew, we made it. All right. Number 15, my previous year's income. So the money I made in the last couple of years was lower. So how am I going to qualify for a mortgage now? Oh, let me tell you, <laughs> let me I would tell like you. to hear it. <laughs> I get this question constantly. Um, I had some clients this week, they went traveling for six months in 2019, right? They've, they've had their jobs for three years, but they went traveling. So their T4s show very, very low. And so I had a conversation. They didn't bring this up. They were kind of hesitant to do their application, send paperwork in. So I called them and to figure out what's going on. And they said, look, we don't want to do this right now because our 2019 T4 was low. We're not going to qualify. So this myth is absolutely false. If you're a full-time employee. What we're looking at is your current income source, right? So you could have had three years off, but if you're currently working full time and we can prove that with a letter of employment and a pay stub and verbal verification, then we can use your current income, right? So as long as everything's in line and you're working full time currently, we can hundred percent use the income. You do not have to worry about your past years. If your past years were low, we just need the story vacation. You were sick. You had to help family, whatever the situation was, we just need to know why, because the lender's going to ask, right? So it's all in the story. Yeah. I think the other side to that is where does it actually matter? So there are circumstances where it does matter. Of course, uh, the times that it matters if your income was low the previous year before was, is if you have like a variable type of income, such as like uh, a commission or you're a contract by contract type yeah. of position. Like, um, you know, we quite often get people who are in the movie industry and they're not guaranteed any work. So, so let's say, just say someone in 2019 just you know, they went away for the six months that would impact that person. Uh, or if you're, unlike. if you're self-employed. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. What I was talking about was if you're an employee, yeah. 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 If, if you're self-employed and your previous year was a lot lower than the year 
prior to that, yeah. we're seeing a downward trend and there could be some issues there, but there are ways to mitigate that. The yeah. vast majority of the time, uh, we can get past that. So mm-hmm. 15 myths guys. Um, uh, that was a lot of good information. I feel like we probably could have found about 30 or 40. All right guys. So, uh, Hey, listen, if you got value from this episode, we ask you a couple things. First and foremost, like, uh, comment, tell us what you want to hear. Subscribe on the YouTube, on the podcast. Share this with a friend. It means a lot for us. We take a lot of our time, our personal time out of office hours to put this stuff together. And we just want to know what you guys think. So uh, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you guys in the next episode.